0: Would you please turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to the Gospel of Matthew? The Gospel of Matthew in chapter 26. This morning is our text towards the end, the very last part of the chapter of Matthew 26. And this has been a a beautiful and also a remarkably gruesome journey as we see the betrayal and heartache and even the beginnings of the scourgings of our Savior as he marches to the cross. The title of the message this morning is Christ's Look of Love. And if you would care to, on the back side of your bulletin is several points from the passage that we want to draw out as a means of application. And by the way, this morning, um, this message has to be firstly for you and it is for me. But I also would encourage you to listen with perhaps a, a counselor's ear, a compassionate counselor's ear. Maybe there's someone who you're around, maybe you're parenting a child or maybe you have a relative or a loved one or a friend, someone that you know that needs to hear some of the assurances uh, that are found in this passage this morning, I encourage you to listen, uh, always listen for for your own sake, but maybe take some notes too as to how you can share this with someone this week. Likely, many of us have someone this week who we need to share what's found in this word this morning and the truths that are there. If there's things that come out that the Holy Spirit brings out of this message that speaks to you, write them down don't Don't trust in your memory and write them down and and think about those things as you leave here today and maybe even pray and this is a a prayer of a faithful. Uh, church member. And that is, you know, pray, God, would you even lay this message on my heart to share with someone else this week, every single Sunday, use that as an opportunity where you've received some, some skilled training and some skilled preaching and teaching in the word. and, And you're imparted with that skill. You're empowered, you're equipped with that. And you're entrusted with that word then to go and take it beyond into the Monday and the Tuesday and the the dreary Thursday afternoon and take that word and say, Lord, would you use this, what I have just heard and what I have learned, would you use it also in someone else's life? First, let God change you in it. When God changes you, then God will change people around you. He'll change people through you. He loves to do that. But He he has to change you first. So you listen first for the truth for your own heart this morning. Matthew chapter 26 and verse number 69. Verse number 69 begins our text this morning. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. And a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him. And she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly, you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Continuing on, when the morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. Throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them in the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him, whom a price has been by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Thus says the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we still ourselves before you to behold your Son here in isolation and agony, and the victim of betrayal. And Father, you laid on him the scourgings that we deserved and brought him all away to death for our salvation. And now he no longer lives in the grave like some failed prophet, but he reigns and ever lives to make intercession for us whom he loves. So, as we preach Christ this morning, we know He's in audience, and we know He's the living Word, and we know He's the priest and the prophet and the preacher this morning who speaks of Himself and Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that we might revel in the revelation of Jesus Christ this morning. Bring to us counsel. Bring to us comfort. Bring to us confrontation and conviction. Father, we pray, do all these things and more than what we even know to ask during this precious time when the word of Christ is opened. We pray this in his name. Amen. As Matthew narrates Christ's journey to the cross, here in this passage, he shows the clear contrast between Christ's faithfulness and the unfaithfulness of Christ's disciples, of God's people. He contrasts the righteousness of Christ with the unrighteousness of his disciples, or even the self-righteousness of his followers. And followers like Peter and followers like you and I are found in this passage. And we have seen how Matthew has laid out what was going on in the band of the disciples leading up to this point. And Matthew is showing us that every believer, that even those who say they're committed and close to Christ, must be watchful in prayer and consciously dependent upon the grace of God or they will fall into sin. If Peter can fail, if Peter can fall, You and I can too. And we do. And when we see a committed disciple fall, when we see another brother or sister in Christ fall, we see how unhappy they become, how unsettled they grow. Sin leads the Christian into misery. No Christian can remain happy. No Christian can remain uh, content and at peace while sin is in his life. No Christian can truly be indifferent towards sin. His own sin. Peter's response to his own failure is a, is a picture of what every true believer's response is. Sin is betrayal. And at the root of sin really is rebellion. And that's why in betrayal and in rebellion, as a follower of Christ... That's why a follower of Christ can't remain happy in their sin. That's why they can't remain at peace in their sin. A true follower of Christ knows that his sin has wounded the heart of Jesus Christ, the Savior. Let me say that again. A true believer, a true follower of Christ recoils at the thought, mourns and grieves at the thought that his sin would lead to the scourging and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, his Savior. And that's really what Peter's actions did on that night. Peter added to the wounds of the Savior. Matthew gives us the framework, but every Gospel writer, actually besides Matthew, there's Mark and Luke and John. All three of the the, the Gospel writers also included this vignette, this denial of Peter. How would you like to have your story Written and repeated four times in the Bible. Oh, for sure, Peter would have loved to have skipped over this chapter of his life. Oh, how he would have loved to have never have lived in that day, had never had made those mistakes. But we see that God is sovereign. And through Peter's failure, God would make into Peter a man who God would use to proclaim the gospel and to build the churches and to set on mission for the good news of Jesus Christ. Luke tells us that Jesus knew that Peter was denying him. Luke tells us in his account that, that Jesus was conscious that Jesus knew what Peter was doing. And I propose to you, and I think Scripture shares with us, and I'd like for you to turn to Psalm 55 for a second, that the wounds that uh, were laid upon Christ by Peter's denial were some of the most severe wounds that Christ would bear. Sin is sin, whether it is by a believer or an unbeliever. Jesus died for all sins. And in Psalm 55, look at the messianic psalm here, Psalm 55, verses 12 through 14. Psalm 55, 12 through 14. "For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I should hide from him. But it is you, a man my equal, my companion, my familiar." friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. Jesus is shown here in this passage and in a thousand years Peter would have loved to have this. But this would be one of the most deep wounds that would be upon the shoulders and the back of Jesus Christ. And the psalmist here in Psalm 55 gives us the insight, gives us the the empathy, gives us the sympathy to look into the heart of Christ in this moment as Jesus stood in trial. To hear in Psalm 55 the sense of isolation that must have been growing in the heart of Christ. Can I even remark about this? Matthew records Peter, Mark records Peter... Luke and John record Peter in the courtyard. But Matthew is not there either. At least Peter's in the courtyard, but no other disciple is mentioned, at least be looking on to the trials of Jesus Christ. While we might think Matthew might be poking at Peter a little bit for including him in his gospel and the denial and the repetition found in Mark, Luke, and John. Let's also remember that Matthew is mindful as he writes of the denial of Peter that Matthew wasn't even there to deny Jesus. Matthew knows that. No creature on earth was standing with Jesus when he was on trial. And soon even the Heavenly Father himself would forsake his Son. Christ would be the loneliest man in the universe. And because of this man, Because of Jesus Christ, you and I have the opportunity to never be alone. Peter denied knowing the man. He denied knowing the man who had loved him and had helped Peter walk on, made Peter walk on water. Had revealed his glory to him on the mount. He had denied the man who had healed his mother and had walked with him, seen miracles after miracles for three years Meanwhile Jesus laid back laid his back open and bare for the wounds and scourgings of this denial. And this is you and I in this moment, Peter. What God has done for us while while we would lay more sin upon his shoulders is the thought that Matthew wants us to understand here. Jesus dies for sinners. He dies for all of their sin. Has God brought healing into your life countless times? Recall, since you're a child, how often has God given you the grace of healing from multiple sicknesses and wounds and injuries and afflictions of diseases? Has God fed you? Has God clothed you? Has God... Through Jesus Christ, ministered to you and those around you, that you would rejoice and fill up your thanksgiving. Has God held you, um, held you when your faith was weak? Has God reassured you when you were full of doubt and anxiety? If these things and more are true, then you are like Peter. And let's behold Christ in this passage together. So there's two truths this morning that i like for us to see. Number one, Christ loves the unfaithful. Christ loves the unfaithful. Luke records in his telling of the Last Supper, in Luke chapter 22 and verse 31, Luke records that Jesus, in the middle of the Supper, says to Peter, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Listen to every word Christ shares with Peter here. Satan has sought to sift you, but I will hold you. And when I have restored you, strengthen the brothers. What an image that Jesus used. We know that He's using this agricultural image here of, of, of sifting the wheat from the chaff. There are different ways that Farmers would carry out the responsibility of separating the wheat from the chaff, but when it was harvested, a great pile of chaff and wheat were all together. And no no farmer, we could imagine, we've never seen, we've never heard, of, could never imagine any farmer taking a pair of tweezers out and trying to separate one grain of wheat from the chaff that could blow away in the wind. It takes no skill. And do you know that the devil hardly takes any skill for him to rattle and shake us? As a matter of fact, the image that's used in separating wheat from chaff in a sifting situation is, is pretty violent to the wheat and chaff. It's taken through a machine or it's taken through a threshing floor and it's, it's driven and it's pushed around and it's, it's blown around in a violent force. And really, the devil loves to, to use violent means very unskillfully to just rowl and shake us in our faith. And this is often the way in which he deals with us. And Jesus says, while the devil would love to sift you out and to separate you as chaff, in the process, Jesus says, I will not allow him. I will not, I will not let you be like chaff. And it won't be because you're strong. It won't be because you have enough faith. It will be because I will not allow him. It will be because I will hold on to you. And Simon responds to Jesus basically, don't worry about Satan. I'm ready. I'm, I'm never going to deny you. I mean, a thousand may fall by your side, but I will stand. And even there in the garden, he pulls out his sword and shows a little bit of a demonstration of his loyalty to Jesus. But now here in the courtyard, everything seems to happen. And listen, when that Roman centurion comes up to Peter and says, are you one of the Galileans that were following Jesus? Is that what the passage says? No, actually, in all three of the all four of the gospels, it's a servant girl. Two servant girls. Luke gives us a little bit more detail, he's a little bit more precise, and he says, It was one of the servant girls who was actually keeping the gate of the courtyard, and she had seen Peter walk in, and she was coming off of her shift, and she was warming herself by the fire and, and asked him, Hey, were you following him in? Because I think I've seen you around him before because he's been in the and he's in this area before. Peter the and Then as he's walking out of the gate, as he flees a little bit, he goes outside the gate and then that servant girl who's, watch, who's keeping guard and keeping the gate notices him and says, hey, aren't you one of those Galileans? And he speaks and it becomes clear. He even speaks like a Galilean. A little bit of a backcountry folk from northern part of Israel up and there in those little towns. And he denies it. Then others around him say, oh no, I think you really are one of those Galileans. And Luke record, Matthew records that he invoked an oath and he, he really, in an untimely way, provoked a promise and swore, probably not curse words, but made an oath, a promise, that he was telling the truth. And even on this, reinforces this. And Simon Peter Remembers the words of the Lord. He is so broken in his heart. And as soon as he utters that third denial, the cock crows. We believe that's around three to four in the morning. When the cock begins to see the break, the promise of the day break in the morning, the cock crows a third time. But turn with me over then to Luke's account in Luke 22. In Luke 22 and towards the end of the passage, Luke 22 verse 61. And the Lord turned. And looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord. How he had said to him before the rooster crows today. You will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. But notice at the beginning of verse 61. And the Lord turned. And looked at Peter. Jesus' matchless love was on display again. Someone's looking at Peter's eyes. We find it to be Jesus. Now, there's a lot of people looking at Peter right now. Remember, he's gone outside the gate and a crowd has gathered around him and said, Wait a minute. Are you trying to get away? What's going on here? Weren't you one of the followers? A lot of people looking at Peter. But where's Jesus? Jesus is bent over. His back is bleeding. His face is bruised. And tears, no doubt, streaming down his cheeks. And he looks into the eyes of Peter. Out of all the people, they look into the eyes of Peter. The third denial rolls off the lips of Peter and Jesus is looking at him. B.B. Warfield, one of the... Old godly commentator said this, our Savior, as he stood giving account in his trial, working for the saving of the world, had time to turn a meaningful glance to his failing disciple. And so to save him in the saving of the world, because the Lord Jesus is not going to let go of Peter, though Peter had let go of him. Listen, you and I, need someone to love us like Jesus loved Peter. We want someone to love us with such a self-denying sacrificial love that they would set our greatest needs ahead of our own. We want that kind of love. Every one of us craves an immutable and unchanging and a perfect love. We want someone who's committed to us no matter what we say or do that might even betray them or push them away, someone who will love us with great passion. And there's only one person in all the world who will love us like that. And in this passage, he looks at Peter and he looks at you and I. There's spittle on his face. It's been slapped by Pharisees. His face is gruesome to look at and it's bruised and he can't stand straight anymore as his back is broken and he looks, he looks at you and I. Do you know what that looks like? It looks like love. And you and I. And if you have never known the face of Christ or the eyes of faith, you can see that face today. The second truth this morning is not only does Christ love the unfaithful, but God, through Jesus Christ, meets the unfaithful with forgiveness. This is where grace meets sin. Grace meets sin in the worthiness of Christ and our utter unworthiness to receive forgiveness. Do you understand? We are not worthy of forgiveness. We do not earn it. We do not deserve forgiveness. And really, in this passage, we see the real Peter and you say, oh yeah, I've known him to be duplicitous his whole life. I've known him to... To be brash and bold. And, and I've always known him to be a denier. No, listen, do you, do you understand here? What we really see of Peter isn't that Peter's a betrayer. What we see of Peter is who Peter really is. He's repentant. We see in this passage not Peter, the real Peter, as being a betrayer, but we see Peter as being a real follower of Jesus Christ. In Luke 22, earlier in the passage in verse 32, Jesus had mentioned that he had prayed that his faith would not fail. Peter acknowledged his sin, and he acknowledged his helplessness as he wept bitterly. His sin, and even admitting his sin, did not make him repentant. And do you know that just admitting your sin, just being honest about how sinful you are, how broken you are, how much of a failure you are, that that's really not That's really not seeking forgiveness? Just admitting being honest about things? Admitting sin doesn't make you repentant. It isn't until that sin is surrendered to Jesus Christ. Listen, it isn't until our sin is laid by faith upon the back of Jesus Christ that we receive forgiveness and cleansing. I know it's an inequitable exchange. We place upon His shoulders, upon His back, upon His body on the cross, the burden and the weight of our guilt and our sin that we have justly earned. We, we have worked up this sin. We have intentionally scoffed and mocked and blasphemed and been unloving and unfaithful and cursing to the heart. And we lay that upon the innocent shoulders of Jesus Christ and in exchange we receive full pardon. It's an unbelievable story. It's why it's called The Good News. And believer, it's still good news for you even after you have believed upon Him and accepted the free gift of salvation. It's still good news for you. Your sin is still laid upon His shoulders. Admitting sin without leading to repentance, admitting sin without surrender upon Jesus Christ only leads to hopelessness. I've sat down with many, many people and they have freely and honestly been even more transparent than I would even dare to be with someone I didn't know. And they have told me all their life story about their sin and about their failures and about all the things they have done wrong. But just admitting your sin without leading into repentance is hopelessness. And Sadly, often people mistake just admitting sin and just revealing it as a substitute for Surrendering it and turning away from it, and sadly they have left the conversation with great hopelessness. And really, they continue in the sin of pride to hold on to their sin and their unbelief that Jesus would even die for all of that. That Jesus would die for the magnitude of their guilt. That he was that he is capable, and that he desires to die for such a sinner as them. Listen, the Gospel isn't, about, isn't, isn't only about people turning from their sin. The Gospel is about a full turn. It is about people turning to Jesus Christ away from their sin. It's about exalting Christ and His works so that the sinner sees hope and turns towards Him. Peter, in this passage, is every man, every Christian that is, Peter would have given anything for this not to be a part of his story. We don't want future forgiveness. We don't want to look on things ahead and say, I'm going, to, I'm going to go into this chapter of life, it'll be full of shame, it'll be full of regret, but I know Jesus is going to forgive me on the other side. We want, yes, we want future forgiveness, but listen, we would rather have future victory over our weaknesses. Peter, if he was standing here today, would say, I would have never, I'd never want to relive that chapter again. I would have done things so differently. Abraham and Moses and Paul and you and I, when we live in our own strength, this is what happens. Now, in just three days... Really, sort of, too, in our thinking now. It's Friday in the morning. In just three days, we see Peter at the tomb, don't we? Where has he come from? Where has Peter come from to get to the tomb? Think about that for a moment. We don't need to prove ourselves worthy for Christ to save us. You see, Jesus died for sinners. He didn't die for the worthy. He died for the unworthy. Jesus died for sinners like Peter. And Jesus died for sinners like you and I. So too, when when Jesus was standing in line to be baptized by John, remember John said, Who am I to baptize you? And he was in a line of sinners. Where else would Jesus be when he's identifying with those he has come to redeem? Remember when Matthew recorded that Jesus would sit at his dinner table and Matthew would introduce Jesus, the Savior, his Savior, to all of his friends and his co-workers, and the Pharisees ridiculed Jesus for eating with the sinners. Who else would Jesus eat with? So, too, when Jesus was nearing the end of his life, no one would stand with him. Why? Who could stand with Jesus? He was dying for sinners. The cock crowed. And Jesus looked at Peter. Now notice. As we had gone into chapter 27 Matthew. The similarity between Judas and Simon. Peter. Both Judas and Peter seem to have some sort of regret. Maybe even some sort of shame. As a matter of fact. It does record that Judas wept and and his heart had changed and he cried bitterly and he went out and he he threw the pieces of silver, the 30 pieces, onto the ground at the feet of the scribes and the Pharisees and he hated himself. And he was so disgusted and he was so, so torn apart that he didn't just cry, he committed suicide. He hanged himself. And that would be the end of Judas in this world. Well, Peter here seems to run as well. Peter seems to have some sort of form of remorse and guilt and tears and grief and daunting shame. But why didn't he go where Judas went? Was it because he was stronger than Judas? No. The answer came earlier, remember, when Jesus said to Peter, Simon, Simon, the devil would like to sift you like wheat, but he will not, for I will keep you in that hour. What's the difference between Simon Peter and Judas? When Peter ran away from the trial that day, He ended up running toward God. We know it seems that he actually ran toward the people of God. Where did Judas run to? Isolation? Even isolation from God in that sense? Where did Peter run? In a few days, we find Peter gathered with him and the disciples in the beginning of John chapter uh, 21. When we find out John records about the resurrection, Mary and Mary, they go to the tomb early on Sunday morning as the sun rises and they're able to enter into the cemetery and they go to, to uh, further address the body of Christ with dignity and honor as it had been a rushed burial on Friday evening. And the angels tell them, Who are you looking for? You cannot find the living among the dead. Go and tell his disciples that he is risen, just as he said. And so Mary and Mary in John 21, and I think it's verses 2 or 3, they go and they enter into the assembly of the believers, of the disciples. And there among them is, is Peter and the apostle whom Jesus loves. And they hear that there's an empty tomb and that Jesus has risen. And John and Peter run, and John stays outside the tomb, but Peter runs inside the tomb, John says. Where was Peter? Was he sulking? Peter ran towards the sound of God, the sound of God among his people. He was with the people of God, and this stands in contrast to Judas who isolated himself and took his life in shame. And this is where the saints, the a true believer's colors are revealed. Followers of Christ find solace and they find encouragement and they find restoration where the people of God are gathered. Let me say that again. Followers of Christ find solace. Followers of Christ find encouragement and restoration where the people of God are gathered. And the fact is that no one gathered as Christ was in the tomb, could say they hadn't betrayed Christ. For every one of them was just like Peter in that moment, weren't they? Peter was among Peters. Just like you and I this morning are among sinners saved by grace. This serves as an example to us, by the way. And often I hear of Christians forsaking the assembly of the church because they're ashamed of their sin and they're ensnared by it and they think, oh, I'm so unworthy to be at church this morning. I feel so ashamed. I feel so guilt-ridden. I don't feel like going to church. Oh, let me tell you this, oh, brother and sister in Christ, if Peter could run to the gathering of unfaithful followers, then you and I should too. You don't know what God can do. On Sunday. Don't forsake the gathering. It's a means of restoration and of preservation of your faith. It's a gracious means of God's faithfulness to you. The church is a gift to the ashamed believer in countless ways. It is where we hear the resurrection like Peter did. And by the way, we keep hearing about it every Sunday here. It is where we hear the faithfulness of Christ in contrast to our unfaithfulness. It's where we receive the assurance of forgiveness and repair and reconciliation and hope and help and encouragement. It is where Christ is and where He meets with His people and gives them gifts and looks on them with love. It's where they can look to Him without shame anymore and worship at His feet. Christ prays for his followers and if you're a child of God, he has prayed for you and secured you in his impenetrable grip. So there's the assurance. Christ has prayed for everyone that is his. And he holds them even though they have lost their grip on him. It is isn't our strength or the strength of our faith that finally delivers us to the end to see Jesus. It is His. And it always has been His strength that holds on to us. Jesus prayed for Peter. And Jesus prays for all those that are His. Does Jesus' prayers get answered? You bet they do. Let's pray.